Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garden. It's Thursday, January 18th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Once upon a time, VCs were happily writing big checks to create biotech startups with the goal of turning cutting-edge science into new medicines. Today, that work continues, but at a slower pace. And for many of these companies, raising more money has proven challenging, if not impossible. That's led to cost-cutting, restructuring, and layoffs. Our colleague Jason Mass joins us to discuss this new financial reality for biotech's startup scene. We'll also look ahead to the biggest biotech stories coming in 2024, including some major data readouts and a few pivotal FDA decisions. All that after a word from our sponsor. I'm Tori Bosch, editor of Stats First Opinion column and host of the First Opinion podcast. And I'm Jesse McQuarters, editor of Stat Brand Studio. We're excited that Stat is launching a brand new community only for our subscribers called Stat Plus Connect. It's an online home for discussion, news, job postings, workshops, and more, all centered around the life sciences and biomedical research. It's also a chance to peek behind the curtain at Stat and interact with our writers and staff. The people that really bring our great journalism and content to you every day. And in fact, I made a course on how to crack first opinion. I lay out the kinds of essays I'm looking for, my editorial process, some writing tips, and much more. And I actually made one about Stat Brand Studio, sharing a little bit about what the heck a brand studio is in the first place, but also some of the things we do to bring the content of our marketing partners to life. You know, it sounds like I'm going to have to hop on to take your course. And Tori, yours sounds amazing. So I'm going to definitely check out yours at connect.statnews.com. Well, fantastic. I'll see you on Stat Plus Connect. So folks, now that JP Morgan is behind us, we've all survived. Um, we have a whole slate of, of other <laughs> news to think about this year. Um, and I want Adam to kind of lead me through what are the things that are most on your mind uh, for the first couple months of this year? Before we get there, world? does anyone feel like does anyone feel like the JPM or the post JPM hangover? I, I sort of feel it well, this week. How, how is everyone else feeling? My post-JPM hangover is COVID. <laughs> so, yeah, I know. <laughs> That's most, true. The it's most hard. hangover yeah. of the hangovers. Yeah. <laughs> but you sound good. You, you sound like you're okay. I'm going to be just fine. It, through the miracle of modern vaccines. Yes. I'll I think it's more good. psychological, though, because I think <laughs> we, you sort of go into that, you know, you're in that week and you're in this moment and there's the adrenaline is flowing and you're doing all this stuff and then you come home. And then you start, and, and I did say this internally on Slack. I said, like, like on Tuesday, it sort of felt like the first day of 2024 for some reason. I, I don't know why it felt that way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I agree on the psychological aspect. Well, I mean, I, I think I feel this personally. I don't know. But I, I do think there's an almost like meta-psychological, that's the wrong, wrong word, um, like a broader effect that you're describing within biotech as a whole. Because when we were within the confines of the conference, both like geographically in San Francisco, but also like the psychological confines of everybody focusing on JP Morgan and giving it this sort of like Punxsutawney importance that maybe it doesn't deserve, biotech stocks were up. And then everybody went home or went skiing or went to their respective post-JP Morgan uh, havens, whatever they might be, and then biotech stocks went down. And I think the 
obvious explanation is just that there was there were a spate of deals that began the conference and then there was the rumor and expectation that cytokinetics would get bought for upwards of 15 billion dollars and when that didn't happen and more deals did not materialize after the conference this sort of sugar high, it seems, kind of faded. And so now, as of yesterday at least, the, the XBI is down 2% for the year after being up, I think, as much as 6% during the conference. And you know, this is like two weeks of data. It doesn't really matter. But I think it's kind of indicative of a lot of the good vibes at JP Morgan were driven by, well, one, I think actually they were driven by the sunshine in San Francisco, which is relatively rare in January. But then secondly, these deals happening and the fact that things have kind of come back to earth suggests something that I think we all kind of knew and people have said that this is probably going to be a pretty volatile year, that it's not so much that like the downturn of the last two years of biotech is just old news now and we've moved into a new normal, but rather that it's going to be fits and starts throughout 2024. Yeah, I'm anticipating that, you know, particularly when we reach the end of Q1 and you have a bunch of companies that are wrapping up their financials for 2023, We'll have like another spurt of news of, you know, layoffs, restructurizing, like reprioritization of pipelines. I mean, simply because of the fact that 2023 was such a rough year up until that last like <laughs> two weeks of 2023. Um, no, I totally, I, I absolutely feel what you're describing, Damien, and I don't think it's just because of COVID. I think that, you know, being together, there was this kind of, you know, not group think, but like effervescence of like, it was the first JP Morgan where, you know, it wasn't the first JP Morgan post COVID. So not everybody was like, oh my gosh, oh, we haven't seen each other since COVID. We're all back. How do we do this? It was the first one of like the normals, see these normal years, quote unquote. And after this like great December and spurt of deal makings. Um, but there's, it still feels like there's a lot, there's still shoes that could drop in, you know, these first few months and brings to mind, I mean, I think everyone's least favorite phrase, like the cautious optimism that might be prevalent in the biotech world these days. And this all started, you asked me, you asked me a question, Allison, about news and, and upcoming stuff. And obviously, <laughs> yeah, and we should get back to that. Adam um, ignored me. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. We just, we needed to sort of lay the groundwork for this discussion, which we did. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, obviously, you know, deals and the readout of clinical trials and FDA approval decisions are all kind of the, you know, that's the news flow that drives the sector. And, um, and there's a, there's a good amount of stuff coming up and we should talk a little bit about some of that. Um, you know, one that what I'm interested in, uh, is on my radar screen is, uh, Madrigal Pharmaceuticals, which is developing a drug for MASH, the fatty liver disease. That's with an M. We used to call it NASH with an N, but they changed it. So, uh, they have a drug, uh, well, which will, will, will likely be the first drug approved to treat MASH. Um, the PDUFA date or the, the FDA decision date is March 14th. Um, I actually met with the CEO of Madrigal, Bill Siebold, uh, during JPM week. Uh, he started, you know, he's relatively new. He started about six, eight weeks ago, I think. Um, you know, and it's going to be interesting to see, you know, I, I think most people expect that drug to be approved. The data looked pretty good. Um, but then the probably the challenge is uh, is what that launch looks like 
Um, you know, as the name implies, fatty liver disease is sort of related to obesity. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a progressive disease. Uh, as it gets worse and worse, um, you know, that fatty liver, um, the fi- fibrosis takes over and damages the liver and it's a progressive disease. And it ultimately, if untreated, leads to um, leads to you know cirrhosis, liver failure, and, and transplant. Um, and I, I, I had a really interesting conversation with Bill Siebold about this because I think there's this, the popular, uh, maybe the conventional wisdom is that, is that mash drugs uh, are going to be, uh, they're, they're going to be impacted negatively, I would say, by the GLP-1, uh, the obesity drugs, because a lot of doctors will turn to obesity drugs first to help people lose weight, which could help, uh, therefore, help people with fatty liver disease. And I think a lot of that is true. But um, what's maybe less understood is that um, is that those drugs do not uh, really don't have any impact on the fibrosis aspect of of fatty liver disease, MASH, um, and that's kind of where the damage actually happens. And so, when I talk to Madrigal, when I talk to Bill Siebold, you know that that's really where they're targeting um, the launch of this drug. Um, you know, for people who have much more advanced disease, and um, you know, it's a, it's a it's still a pretty big population. Uh, you know, he he identified about one hundred twenty five thousand uh, people with sort of more advanced MASH uh, who are already being treated or seen by specialists, you know, specialist physicians, and and so uh, you know, there's there's a good chance that I think that launch goes off pretty well. Uh, it's one of those you know kind of wait and see. Uh, things that I think that, you know, certainly investors will kind of wait to see what the numbers look like. But uh, that's definitely on my radar screen. And when is that decision date, Adam? March 14th. March 14th. Did Bill, did you guys touch on, I mean, kind of the larger ecosystem for mash drugs and and obesity um, that, you know, you mentioned, and I've heard, you know, pretty much every startup that had any sort of like NASH, mash drug on the pipeline is now eyeing it for potential efficacy and weight loss. Um, what was Bill's perspective on the whole ecosystem as it is? Well, I think, you know, he certainly acknowledges that that the obesity drugs, the GLP-1s will, um, and I, I keep saying GLP-1 because- I'm It's okay. About that. Yeah. Right, this podcast you. is I, fluid I, on I, that, I, on I, that I, issue. I'm 100% right about it. You know, I think he acknowledges <laughs> that for people with earlier, you know, for people with earlier stage NASH, um, and not to get too deep into the weeds, kind of how that's staged and all, but um, that, you know, that- that that class of drugs will have an impact. That those pa- those patients will probably take those drugs. But it's really again, it's really sort of the later stage drugs. Now there is a, there are a couple studies. Um, I think Novo is running one, and I think Lilly is running one where they are looking at their obesity drugs to uh, you know the impact that potentially they may have on later stage nat- mash patients. Um, We've seen some data already that don't doesn't really seem to show that those drugs have much of an effect. So we'll have to see. Um, and so, like you know, so the the narrative there might change. Um, but uh, again, that's one. Um, we should also mention Damien, company that you focus on a lot, or that you have you have uh, written about is Amelin. I'm sorry, I said Amelin. Wow, remember Amelin? <laughs> you remember Amelin? <laughs> Diabetes, exactly. Man, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, Damien, a company that you have written about and followed, uh, Alnylam Pharmaceuticals, has a pretty big phase three readout coming up for its heart medicine. They do. And it has implications not just for them, but for really like an entire emerging sector of biotech. Anyway, the study is called Helios B, and it's a test of Alnylam's RNA 
uh, drug, which is already approved for ATTR amyloidosis for people with polyneuropathy, which is a relatively rare disease, or is frankly a rare disease. They are testing it to see if it has long-term benefits for the much more common ATTR amyloidosis with cardiomyopathy, which is a progressive heart disease that I know we've spoken about on this podcast in the past. But the sort of logline for that disease is it was once thought to be rare, like the polyneuropathy variety, but is now understood to affect somewhere between 300,000 and 500,000 people around the world. And it is apparently pretty treatable by medicines that go after the underlying genetic mutation or the genetic defect, I guess, that leads to this presentation of cardiomyopathy. So alnylam has bet quite a bit on this. If, if this drug were to work, that would be the largest patient population that the company has a medicine to treat. They have thus far specialized in rare diseases, but everything has become a lot more complicated. I mean, we can kind of zoom through some of the history here, but the standard of care for this medicine has changed, or sorry, for this disease has changed rapidly since the approval of the first medicine to treat it, which is an oral uh, treatment from Pfizer. Since then, we've seen positive data from BridgeBio, which expects to win FDA approval for a seemingly potentially superior oral treatment. Um, in the next, I guess, year and a half, they would expect to launch that drug. And then alnylam got positive, but apparently not positive enough for the FDA results in cardiomyopathy with an earlier version of basically the same medicine that they're now pushing forward with. So what we're waiting on is data from a large phase three study determining whether alnylam's RNA drug can prevent uh, the the deleterious effects of cardiomyopathy, which is, say, heart failure and eventually death, in a really large group of patients. And, you know, it makes sense on paper. The drug should work. We understand how the disease works. This is a drug that silences the expression of the gene that leads to the buildup of the amyloid that damages the hearts of patients. But until we see the data, we won't really know. And so this has become one of the bigger binary readouts in recent biotech history. I've read I don't know how many preview notes from cell-side analysts. Alnylam has hosted, I don't know how many conference calls with key opinion leaders to talk about this. And we're at the point now where we're just ready to turn over the card and see the data. And this is one of those things that will shift billions of dollars in market value in, in Alnylam's stock price. And then similarly in the stock prices of some of its competitors in this space. And it's really the, uh, it's an outcome study, right, Damien? So it, it so what people are, obviously the study has to hit StatSig and has to achieve the, the endpoint. But it's really the sort of the magnitude of the benefit that's going to be really key here. Exactly, exactly. And and because it doesn't exist in a vacuum, there are other medicines with data, albeit, you know, cross-trial comparisons are always fraught. They're especially fraught in this disease because, as I mentioned, the year in which you conduct your study, you're almost conducting a study on a different patient population because the standards of treatment are changing as we speak. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, this is going to be... I don't know, one of those classic cases of, of like a bake-off, basically. And obviously, patients stand to benefit when there are multiple medicines vying for eventually market share. But at least, you know, at this point, the hearts and minds of the prescribing physicians who treat this disease. But yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what the data show. Both of the things that you just mentioned kind of fall into this category of drugs that I kept on hearing from investors from startups who were meeting with Big Pharma at JP Morgan were really the, the category of real key interest in 2024 and beyond, which was cardiometabolic conditions. From what I was gathering around the conference, 
big pharma has a huge interest in adding some of those products to its pipeline, doing deals in that area. And it's an area where it seems like investors are going to be putting a lot of money in the coming you know, year or two. That along with neuro, which kind of brings us to two other drug candidates, one of which I personally find really interesting, Vertex's non-addictive pain treatment, um, which I would characterize as a, as a neuro product. Um, yeah. I am just so fascinated. So they, they've said, you know, they're going to expect results in early 2024 for this, you know, novel pain treatment, which is, I mean, something that has, as a whole, as the drug industry, we haven't seen many, you know, pain treatments um, that have turned out to be non-addictive. Um, and <laughs> I, I particularly would be fascinated to see, you know, based on how that does, it signals a whole new era for Vertex, which up until this point has been a rare disease drug maker that has focused on very, very small patient populations. And to me, of the five products that were kind of laid out as pathways for Vertex to take when Reshma took over as CEO, you know, a, a few years back, this one was the most interesting to me. What do you two think? Yeah, I think you're right, Allison. You know, it's funny. We, we, we've talked a lot about Vertex in in relation to the approval of Castrevi, you know, the first CRISPR medicine for sickle cell and now beta thalassemia this week. Um, but, you know, that's still going to be a relatively small drug from a commercial perspective. Um, yeah. And it will be dwarfed, dwarfed by um, the potential of a new, a novel, non-opioid you know, non-addictive pain drug if one were to be successfully developed and approved. And so there was so much more attention um, being paid to Vertex's pain drug. And unlike you said, the upcoming results of the phase three studies, which are in acute pain. So these are people who undergo sort of, you know, I don't want to call it minor surgery, but, you know, bunionectomies, um, tummy tucks, those kinds of surgeries where doctors routinely prescribe, you know, a short course of uh, you know, an opioid you get, right, you know, just to sort of manage the pain in sort of a post-surgical setting. And that's where uh, Vertex is testing the drug right now in these phase three studies. So if positive could lead to an approval, you know, they're also looking at the drug in more of a chronic pain setting as well. Yeah. It's, I mean, to your point, Allison, about the dearth of novel ideas here, I mean, there have been just in the past decade, uh, NGF inhibitors, NMDA drugs, there have been so many attempts to find means of treating pain, whether acute or chronic, that do not involve um, anything that carries the risk of addiction. And they've all failed for a variety of reasons, whether, I mean, some of it was probably clinical trial design, underlying science, issues in how the companies develop them, et cetera, et cetera. Even the class of medicines that Vertex's drug belongs to has a long litany of failures. And, and Vertex attributes the success it's seen so far with this medicine and some of the others in the pipeline with just better chemistry, that they just kind of cracked something that uh, other researchers could not do. And we'll find out when these phase three studies read out whether that's correct. And then similarly, um, Adam, as you mentioned, they're looking at chronic pain, which they had a positive uh, positive phase two data on last year. And then those phase threes, I believe, are already enrolling. And so 
just in terms of the the magnitude of the potential market, which is kind of a silly thing to talk about when there are no data, but here we are, um, it's tens of billions of dollars. I mean, to your point, Adam, about it oh, dwarfing what, what Vertex already does. I mean, this is something that there's kind of a sky's the limit if the data come through in the best possible case. And that would be transformative to Vertex, a company that began, well, with a long and interesting history in hepatitis C that is like, feels like a million years ago, but that whose recent success is owed to chipping away at cystic fibrosis by focusing on different basically genetic uh, underlying factors of that disease and building a very large, sustainable and enviable business on it. But I mean, this would catapult them into something entirely unprecedented, at least in their history, if it were to work out. And it's, I mean, it's just like kind of a fascinating scientific story. People should go back and read our colleague Jonathan Wozen wrote a story, I guess that was late last year, about the way this drug came about. It dates back to Aurora Pharmaceuticals, a company Vertex acquired in California. I mean, this is just like one of the few times, I guess kind of similar to what we were talking about with Alnylam and the potential of their medicine and cardiomyopathy of like a true like step change in the magnitude of what a company does in biotech. So let's wrap this segment um, talking about a disease that as uh, we, we talk about often here on this podcast, and that is Alzheimer's. Um, we are waiting for the FDA to make its decision on uh, Eli Lilly's Alzheimer's treatment called Denanumab. Uh, and it should come, Lilly, Lilly's a little squirrely. They don't sort of actually give you guidance, uh, specific guidance on kind of the date that the FDA is set to make this decision. But um, it's supposed to be early 2024. So I think a lot of people are assuming at some point this month or maybe early in February. Yeah, this is the other drug that I was thinking of when I was alluding to, uh, you know, what's the excitement in neuro. Denanumab kind of coupled with what Lily has been doing in diabetes and obesity um, is a potentially huge driver of business for Lily moving forward. It is kind of funny, though, if you think about it, sort of shifting narratives, Allison and Damien, if we would have had this conversation like 18 months ago, you know, we would have said, oh, my God, an Alzheimer's drug, huge, blockbuster, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. You know, but it's even that these days, and it could be still be a big drug, right? But even that is sort of dwarfed these days by obesity, right? And just the fact that Lily, you know, so much of the focus on Lily these days is its obesity franchise. That underlines, I think, a, a lot of things. Well, I mean, one, so denanumab is an anti-amyloid Alzheimer's treatment. It would not be the first FDA-approved one. It would be the third and the second one that anybody really cares about, with the, the middle thing being ASI uh, and Biogen's lecanemab, marketed as Lecembi, um, which was approved in January of last year. What's interesting with denanumab, I think it's fair to say that its efficacy looks pretty similar to... Uh, the ASI and Biogen drug. And I can say, having spoken to neurologists, they perceive the two drugs as being relatively interchangeable with respect to the benefits that they would offer to patients in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease, which is the population in which they've been studied. What makes it interesting, at least to me, is we will see how Lilly prices, first of all, and positions this drug when it is approved and it is expected. I mean, I, I haven't seen anybody forecasting that this drug might be rejected. So, so we expect it to be approved. But Lily, you know, they, they have a different way of doing things. We saw just last year the FDA approval of ZepBound, their um, rival to Wegovi, and they priced it competitively to Wegovi and under and they've rolled out different marketing ideas of trying to sell it almost directly Two patients, they have a different approach to this stuff. And so I feel like we're going to learn a lot about how the market for these novel Alzheimer's treatments is going to shake out based on what we hear from Lily on the day of that approval. It's basically what I'm looking for here. 
I feel like I have to go back and sort of reread, look over the data again, because it's been a while. But remember, I think with the other interesting, maybe differentiating factor with Lily, with denanumab is remember they, you know, this is a drug again that clears amyloid from the brain. And remember, um, Lily tested this drug where, you know, once a patient, once amyloid was reduced to a certain sort of non-detectable level, then they stopped treatment with the drug. Um, so that's a little bit different than what you would normally think of as sort of a chronic therapy that you just, you know, you're taking it forever. Um, so that will be also interesting to kind of see if that, you know, if, if, if that, how they market that and what the label looks like and how it's perceived within the physician community as well. There's a new trend in the world of biotech startups. Some buzzy company poised to disrupt this, that, or the third raises tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital. Then, months later, that same buzzy company is laying off staff and reprioritizing its research, leaving those of us on the outside to wonder just what the hell happened. Stats' Jason Mast wrote about the most recent example of this new reality in biotech, and he joins us now to talk about it. Jason, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to be here. All right, Jason, so tell us about Dewpoint Therapeutics. Yeah, Dewpoint was a company that uh, Polaris, the VC firm, launched a few years ago, and it had one of the I'd say cooler ideas um, and more more out of left field ideas um, of any biotech of that time, which was they were going to exploit this sort of new thing that scientists had found in cells, which are called uh, biomolecular condensates, or basically little bubbles of of, uh, of liquid. Um, you can think of it as like oil and water that it turns out cells use to. Um, make all these different like biochemical reactions happen or either not happen. Um, and they were only discovered in 2008, but, or 2009, but scientists had found that they were involved in all types of um, processes and potentially all types of different um, human maladies. So they were going to exploit this to go after ALS, cancer, heart disease, uh, neuromuscular disorders, women's health, all these Different conditions. They raised a bunch of money. Most recently, 150 million in in 2022, um, and signed a bunch of big pharma partnerships with Pfizer, Merck, Bayer, um, Evotech, the German company. Um, and then they kind of stopped announcing things for a while. Uh, <laughs> and then um, it turns out, I believe, at the beginning of this week, they brought everyone in to a meeting um, and announced that the company was evolving and as um evolutions often happen in in the corporate world uh that would not happen with everyone who was in that room or or on that meeting you mean Um, some people were evolved out of the company (laughs) exactly yes yeah yeah yeah. something like that um and so they laid off 15 percent of their staff 18 people out of 130 um but they say that it's a sort of a temporary measure they weren't able to raise more money but they were um, but they weren't going to actually reduce their overall headcount. So they're basically going to, as they try to move a couple of drugs towards the clinic, they're going to hire new people to, who are experts in that and lay off some folks who they think are no longer needed as they also, you know, sideline a couple programs that were earlier stage that they don't feel like they have the resources at this point to go after. Um, they had also lost multiple big pharma, big pharma partnerships uh, as the science was either not quite there or the companies, uh, you know, pivoted away. 
So this is, as we mentioned, not an isolated case of a company seemingly with lots of money pivoting or evolving or whatever the term of art is nowadays that is basically cutting jobs and honing one's focus, perhaps you know narrowing the aperture of what they initially promised to do. And Allison, I feel like you've covered this a lot over the last year or 18 months. This is not the first company with a really large bank account to embark on something like this. Yeah, to kind of uh, you know break the fourth wall, this is something that Jason and I have been talking a lot about in the stat newsroom. Um, this is we've had a whole list of examples of companies that have you know kind of raised a bunch of money, had partnerships, and then in you know this primarily the second half of 2023, but we're seeing it continue into 2024, have announced you know layoffs, you know downsizings, what have you. Um, you know other examples include Renegade. Era Therapeutics, which, which Jason, I know you wrote about right before JP Morgan, Orna Therapeutics, Orbital. And it's something that, you know, I was talking to one of the investors involved in a couple of these companies, um, MPM Capital, which, you know, has a, uh, their bioimpact fund it was involved in Renegade and Orna, or is involved, I should say. Um, I was talking to them at, at JP Morgan and, uh, in so many cases, what's really kind of like hung me up has been that many of these companies have like launched or have had a big financing and within the span of a year are laying off people. The folks at MPM Capital had had kind of pegged it as a sign of, you know, smart, uh, you know, financial management that it's, you know, better for companies to do this when they have Three years of cash in the bank versus one year of cash, and to you know the point you made, Jason, with um, with Dewpoint that you know oh in many cases it's just that you know they're going to be moving to the clinic, so they are actually going to be hiring clinical staff, and that was that's a shift. But there are also I think kind of people in the biotech industry that would point to some of these examples and say. Well, this is actually, we think, a sign that the science is proving harder to figure out than these companies had thought, and they need to conserve cash as a result. Jason, have, you know, what are you hearing um, about this trend? Yeah, I think that's I think that's roughly correct. Um, I'm not sure exactly what's happening, especially with the companies that you know announce. We've raised three hundred million dollars, and then five months later, they say we're laying off, uh, you know, ten percent of our staff. Um, and I imagine that, you know, some of that money was either raised before or, or was in tranches, so you didn't actually get all that money. Um, but I do think the science part is a big component. Where you have um, you have these companies that are. Um, I was talking with one genetic executive who was like, these companies overbuilt in the case of, um, uh, of you know, some of these startups and. They wanted, and they thought that they were going to be the next, you know, huge uh, Intellia Therapeutics, CRISPR Therapeutics, or you know, Vertex Biogen, whatever that huge company is. Um, and it turns out, and this sort of is always the case, that the science is a lot harder. Um, I think that a lot of these companies launch, and they think that they're they don't necessarily think that it's easy. But if you look at a company that in the past has gone after a blue sky area, like say Moderna. They've had to raise a ton of money and then raise in a ton of money over and over and over again. And if you're in an environment where 
that kind of money isn't necessarily available to you to constantly dip into and 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 expand when the scientific hurdles that inevitably arise arise then you have to uh, make some tough choices and figure out what's going to get us to that uh you know next clinical readout or next uh milestone where we'll be able to actually go back and raise more money and and, and move this forward Oh, absolutely. I think it, it speaks a lot to the circumstances in which those initial rounds of money have been raised um, and what they would kind of need to raise a new round, you know, particularly valuations. Um, MPM, when I was talking to them, prided themselves that you know they had not had a company have a down round um, in these mm-hmm. last you know couple of years. Or this last year of of operations, which uh, I don't think a lot of other VCs could say. And and one of the the folks at NPM had said, you know, we we wanted. Um, I think this was with relation to Renegade specifically. Um, they they wanted to be in a position where like they're not dependent on the markets turning around this year um, and kind of you know hugely improved financial sunny skies ahead. But I think it does speak to yeah, this like overall environment and and you know cautious optimism about 2024 and what the fi- what kind of finances will actually be available moving forward. You know, I think the numbers um, sort of support what you guys are saying. Uh, you know, Silicon Valley Bank uh, put out a report this week on healthcare financing. You know, in the private sector, you know, venture capital financing of all all, all types of healthcare. But you know, if you look at like biopharma deals, I think what's really interesting about some of the numbers that they that they put out was that in 2023, um, the dollar amount of biopharma VC deals is actually down 25% year over year. Um, and a lo- and there's, there seems to be a lot more down, uh, like sort of, I guess, down, down rounds, you know, companies raising new money at lower valuations. Although it's, what was funny about the report, it was sort of camouflaged because um, they, they, looked at, they looked at deals and sort of whether they were up rounds, down rounds, or, sort of, or what they called undisclosed valuations. And undisclosed valuations were 67% of the deals uh, last year. And that's up from 57% in 2022. So there's a lot more deals where they're like, just like not talking about the valuation. I think you probably can assume that a lot of those are down rounds and you know no one wants to talk about that. So I think that, you know, those numbers kind of support what you guys are saying. My favorite is the one they do the flat rounds, but they just call it a Series B extension instead of so, a, a Series C, <laughs> so they don't have to call it a down round yeah. or a flat round. Um, but yeah, and I, I mean, I think you're also seeing it like in the public markets to some extent, at least when you look at like the gene editing companies and, and gene therapy companies where you're, you know, seeing Sana, Beam, um, a couple other companies lay off folks as they... It, Intelia as well, lay off folks as they try to figure out, okay, wh- what, how much money do we need to get to is something that is actually going to generate value or convince investors or start bringing in revenue. Um, so it's not just a, a private thing. It's, a, it's sort of across the, across the spectrum. So Jason, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, with DuPont there, you know, they were sort of prosecuting or going after this kind of new kind of science, these new discoveries. Um, I wonder in this sort of new reality, uh, this new environment, are you seeing less, more enthusiasm for these kinds of startups? You know, or 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 maybe no impact. I don't. I don't know yet. Um, I mean, you're definitely seeing companies launch, even as 
um, I think both the scientists and the investors behind it understand that it's going to be a long slog era. The Feng Zhang uh, um, startup is is an example of that. Um, both Jennifer Doudna and David Liu have similar startups that are, um, they're both kind of in stealth, but are, are launching will probably raise a bunch of money, even though they know that that's going to be a long slog. Um, at the same time, you do see like, you know, GSK spending a billion dollars to buy up a company that launched last year that is just basically a, essentially a fancy extended release formula for existing drugs. Um, and so I think, um, I think you are not, I think it's going to be a long time or at least a little bit before we see a, maybe a Moderna or a Sana launch that, you know, they throw all this money at, at a blue sky area. But I think there's still, there's still interest in uh, advancing really interesting science when it's compelling enough, when it, you know, in some cases has a big enough name behind it on the science side, um, even if we don't quite see what we saw three years ago at peak COVID. If I could add on to that, um, you know, several of the companies that we kind of pointed out are, you know, in the genetic medicine space. And somebody asked me uh, during an event at JP Morgan, what why they're like the that space seems to be a little like depressed and i think it comes down to a lot of these companies are still they're still the hurdle of delivery um you know outside of kind of ophthalmology and uh delivering to the liver uh it's really difficult to figure out how to kind of broaden the reach of these medicines and so there's still a lot of science to be figured out um, and, you know, in a time period where capital is not, you know, flowing freely, that that places you in some constraints. Yeah, there's no science to figure out. And then on the other side, there's also like still questions about how lucrative any of these drugs will be when they're approved. Mm -hmm. It's like Intel is going to have a medicine, hopefully in a few years. And, you know, people are going to get that versus an myelomar ionis drug that probably does the same thing. We just got to get dosed every year, every few months. One thing that struck me on the sort of financing side, Jason, reading your story is the DuPont CEO told you basically that they were advised that going back to private investors to get more money was just like a non-starter conversation for a preclinical company in this environment. And that is such a jarring change from, let's say, three years ago, where the equivalent of DuPont Therapeutics would probably be like polishing their S1 to go public because preclinical companies were able to do so and did so in relatively large numbers back then. And then that reminded me that like, well, that wasn't so great either. I mean, we, we used to joke, I think on this podcast that companies would go public and blow up, whether in the clinic or whatever, before we had a chance to learn their names or what they did. Such was the- <laughs> Remember, and this is, Damien, remember yeah. the hypelines? Pipelines. Yeah, the pipelines, the dawn of the pipeline, yeah. um, a company with a pipeline that had tiny milestones that went from, I mean, whatever, like crossing the street would be one of them. Anyway, uh, I think that era of profligacy, one, a lot of people lost a lot of money and a lot of people, I think, soured on biotech by and large back then. And I think it contributed to the downturn that these companies are now dealing with the aftermath of to where just thinking and listening to you guys talk, it just feels kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like it's just like totally feast or famine for these companies because they, their investors would be pressuring them to go public if going public were an option because that is an exit and these VCs need those desperately. But then we've seen so many companies go public, I think pretty definitively too early such that it's deleterious to their long-term success. And um, I guess the point I'm making is that it sounds hard. Yeah, and I think it actually, I mean, 
it probably does make more sense in the end for a company like Dewpoint or a company like um, Era or Sauna or whatever it is to get that first clinical, you know, readout or whatever to actually show that this works before going public um, and, and raising even more money that might get, uh, you know, end up, be, end up being underwater on the public markets and forgotten about. Yeah. I think that's why you like in Jason's conversation with Dewpoint, in my conversation with the folks, you know, the investors behind Renegade, they both stressed that they're going to be hiring, you know, clinical staff, that they are working towards getting to the clinic. I think the the era of like bold science experiments, you know, it has unfortunately, like in many ways, fallen to the wayside in this kind of financial market. And in the sort of company that you talked about, uh, I think last year, Century Therapeutics, it actually worked out pretty well. They got got rid of a lot of their science staff um, and they were able to get, I think now, right, a good readout that should, should push them forward, right? Yeah, I, I ran into uh, Tark, the CEO of Celsius, that I think we talked about in August on the podcast, if, if I'm correct. Um, they had to lay off 75% of their staff just to get a clinical trial going. And it, he had been given very similar guidance to what you've, you know, you've been hearing, Jason, which was basically his investors were saying, like, you can't really, we can't really tap into the private markets anymore. This is where you're at a, you're at a stage where, like, we really expect you to IPO. He can't really do that, you know, <laughs> without clinical data, then they needed to kind of get, they needed to extend their cash to get into the clinic I ran into him at JP Morgan and he was saying that actually they've started getting some of the data back from this trial and it looks like they made the right decision. The data's looking good. He, you know, they're not disclosing it yet, but it was kind of a, a sign of brighter skies on the other end of this very tricky, you know, company re-strategization that they experienced. Jason, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what is your favorite post-JPM hangover cure? You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week.